Well, Merry Christmas. It's good to see you all today. <laughs> what a crazy week. Boy, it's been an amazingly crazy week. Dave, can you turn the light on right here so I can see? Is there a way to turn the light on? Just start pushing buttons. There you go. That's much better. Well, this was sort of a spiritual week for me because I, uh, I saw this, this uh, ice coming, and my house has not had good experience with ice in the past and thought, this is not going to be good. So I prayed, specifically prayed, Lord, please don't let our pipes burst. Well, God answered that prayer with a resounding no. And we had six pipes burst. Actually, one burst three in three different places. So you fix it, and you find out that it's broken over here. And it was horrible. I mean, it was, like, uh, terrible. <laughs> it's not enough not to just have water, but to deal with water. So uh, anyway, I had a friend of mine who is actually a plumber who came, to, who came over when I got to my point of complete ignorance. And the, he helped me, and we were working on it, and my phone rings, and it's my neighbor, Nancy. She is a twice-widowed neighbor who uh, is very feisty and has a lot of spunk. And so whenever she talks with you, you can't tell if it's genuine panic or if it's just normal. Anyway, I think this was genuine panic, and she said, you know, my, my well, the spigot on my well is just, there's a geyser in my backyard, and I'm afraid that these hundreds of gallons of, uh, of water are going to gush over my guest. She has a little guest house in the back of her backyard. So my plumber friend and I go over there, and we're sitting there, you know, trying to figure out the well thing, or he is, and I basically just drove him over. <laughs> And Nancy has this dog named Freckles, and he's one of those sheep dogs that, you know, like, have you ever seen a sheep dog work sheep, how they are very attentive to sheep? Well, this dog is also very attentive to playing frisbee and wanting to jump up on you and is very excited about just life in general, a lot like Nancy. Anyway, we get there, and I realized about five minutes into our uh, fixing this this well problem, I look over at Freckles, and Freckles is is down like this, looking straight at me in the eye at, with a Frisbee laying right in front of him. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, that is probably a lot like God looks at us when we bring our prayers to him. He is dealing with much bigger issues, and we are there wanting to play Frisbee. Freckles was clueless as to why we were there and the big reason that we were there to deal with something much more important than throwing a Frisbee. But for that dog in that moment, there was nothing else in the world but the fact that, there was, that I was there. I mean, he was looking me right in the eye, just waiting for me to throw the Frisbee. So I threw the Frisbee, and we had fun. But I thought, you know, that, that is a lot like our spiritual lives. Because we find ourselves waiting on the Lord uh, for issues in life that we think, you know, it, it's time to get this Frisbee game started. And he seems to be dealing with bigger issues much of the time. Well, let's turn together to John chapter 7. 
at a passage that I've loved for years. As we go through this series where we take a single message from each book of the Bible, we are at the book of John, and you can imagine trying to decide just one spot in John to uh, talk about. I mean, I guess it gets that way for most most books of the Bible, but uh, I actually flip-flopped on a, a couple of different places in John this week. But we landed here in John 7. John, of course, is very unique in the Gospels um, because uh, of the four Gospels, the first three Gospels are called, uh, in theological circles, you may have heard the term synoptic Gospels. Sin means, means together, optic means to see, so to see together. And you have the, these first three Gospels that you could sort of do a uh, sort of a put them on top of each other in a sense and, and see them together. There is this sense that they're very similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar in many aspects. But John, more than 90% of John's content is not in the other Gospels. And so when John finally came along, and he was, he was the last gospel written, as the last apostle alive, and when he finally came along and wrote the gospel of John, people were probably like, wow, we got a bunch of new stuff on the life of Jesus. And they did, in fact. And John himself even admitted, you know, many more things could be written about Jesus, but the books of the world couldn't hold them. So John chapter 7, we're going to look at an encounter in the life of Christ that strikes close to home or struck close to home for him, very close to home because it was a conversation he had with his brothers. Look at John chapter 7. Let's start right in verse 1 and we'll work our way down through some of these verses. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brother said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works, which you were doing. Now, when we read the Christmas story each December, or when we get around to it in our Bible reading program uh, throughout uh, the new year, we get to that section of Matthew where it's, it says that Joseph, the stepdad of Jesus, the husband of Mary, kept Mary a virgin until the birth of Jesus. But Matthew actually uses that word, until, which means after Jesus, they had the normal relationship that a husband and wife would have and had children. Um, Matthew's gospel also records their names. You don't need to turn there, but just listen as I read from Matthew 13, about verse 54 and following. It says, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? This is his hometown talking. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is his mother, is not his, Mary, his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where did this man get these things? And they took offense at him. So they name his four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. And he has at least two sisters, because there are sisters, says, but their, their names are not given. So Jesus has at least six siblings, at least six, four brothers and at least two sisters. 
And these two brothers, James and Judas, also contributed to the New Testament after they came to faith in Christ, which was not till after the resurrection. But these brothers of Jesus, they come up to him and say, leave Galilee and go to Judea, here in these verses we just read, because the Feast of, the, of Booths was near. He's basically saying, um, you're up here in Galilee, but you're seeking to be well known. Don't do it up here in Galilee. Go, go to where people, you know, prophets and everybody goes that's supposed to be well known. Go to Jerusalem. Go to Judea. It's kind of like if Jesus was trying to be a country and western star, but he was only playing music in Salina, Texas. It's like, go to Nashville if you were trying to become a country music star. Don't stay up here in Galilee. Go down to Judea. In fact, the Feast of the Booths would be a great time for you to go down there and be the hot shot that you are. And that you kind of get the sense that that's the, that's the, uh, the mindset of the brothers, that they, did, they weren't believing in him, but they were encouraging him to go on down and uh, do a better job with public relations than he was doing. Feast of Booths. Feast of Booths is also called the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of, uh, of um, it's called Sukkot in Hebrew. Sukkot means booths. It's the, it was the tents that they would camp in. I remember one time when I was in Israel, I asked um, one of the Jews there, I guess it was a guy in the hotel, almost a total stranger, but it was the time of Sukkot. And I noticed that he wasn't really observing Sukkot at all. And so I asked him, do you... Uh, do you ever observe Sukkot? And he says, no, I don't like camping. <laughs> because that's what they do. They actually move out of their house, and many of them build makeshift tents or tabernacles or, or uh, buildings out on their back porch on their balcony. You know, four stories up, and you look out on this balcony, and there's this little camp-out place where they live and uh, for the week. And if you forget something, just go inside and get it. Well, the Feast of Booths actually had a purpose. Its original purpose was a time for God's people to remember how God had delivered them from bondage in Egypt, how he had provided for them all through the wilderness, and they lived in tents to remember their sojourning, to remember the time that they lived in tents for all that time. Sukkot was also the most joyful of all the biblical feasts because the hard work was done. This is a fall feast. The harvest was done, and everyone was celebrating. And in fact, every seven years at Sukkot, the entire law was read to the people. So this was a great, great time for Israel. And even if you go to Israel today in the fall, this is still a joyful feast. Jesus' brothers give the reason that Jesus should leave Galilee and go to Judea. Verse 4, they say, For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. The idea there is, again, you don't be a country star in Salina. You go to Nashville. Don't try to be, you know, the Messiah that you're trying to be up here. Go down there. But note that John tells us why they said this in verse 5. For, or because, not even his brothers were believing in him. Interesting insight, isn't that? Not even his brothers. And notice the word there, even, not even his brothers. So people weren't believing in him, not even his family, not even his brothers. 
How could you grow up with Jesus and not know he's the Messiah? I mean, it's like pretty tough to hide it if you're growing up with Jesus. Why? How could you grow up with Jesus and not believe in him? Answer, because you grew up with him. Because he's your brother. Because you, you've seen him, you know, in diapers, as it were. Well, probably not. He's the older brother. But still, you're familiar with him. I mean, how would you like Jesus as an older brother? I mean, that would have been tough for Mary to say, why can't you be like your brother? It's like, Mom, he's God. Well, they didn't believe that, but still, he's you know, a perfect older brother. And so there was probably a good deal of resentment on their part. And for whatever reason, not even his brothers were believing in him. Jesus, of course, in another trip to Nazareth, said that a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his own household. Familiarity breeds contempt, and Jesus was not an exception. Well, look at how Jesus answered them. In verse 6, he says, So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. In other words, Jesus basically says, look, when it's time, I'll reveal myself to Jerusalem. I will reign as king, and I'll also die on the cross. But for you guys, you know, any time's a good time. The sooner the better. But, but my time has not yet come. In other words, guys, you're playing with a frisbee. You know, i got bigger issues that I'm thinking about. We're not, we're not dealing with the small issues that you're thinking about. It's not just becoming a public figure. My goal is to follow the Father in every way. I'm on a different schedule altogether. Keep your finger here in John 7, if you would, and turn back to John 2. John chapter 2. This is not the only time that Jesus has made this statement to his family. In John chapter 2, his mother, you remember this scene, Jesus' first miracle up in Cana in Galilee. John chapter 2, look down in verse 4. You know the scene, this is where they run out of wine, and the mother of Jesus, Mary, comes to him and says, they have no wine. And then verse 4, Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. So you see, he says that again. He said it to his brothers, My hour has not yet come, but for you, for you, for you any time's good. And here with Mary, he says the same thing. And the implication, certainly, with Mary was, you know, they're out of wine. This would be a great time to get that kingdom thing rolling. Because the kingdom of God in the Old Testament was prophesied to have uh, wine as the symbol of great joy and, and blessing. And so it would be a great time. Hey, they're out of wine. Why don't you just go ahead and get the kingdom rolling? And this is why Jesus says, hey, my, my time has not yet come. But then he goes ahead and meets the need for the wine. And his disciples saw the first sign and began to place their faith in him. But Jesus had to more than once tell people who pushed him to do things ahead of the Father's schedule, my time has not yet come. Look at a few more places in John. Uh, Turn to John chapter 8. John 8, and look at verse 
20. John 8, verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Now turn to John 12 and look down at verse 23. John 12, 23. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Look at the next chapter, 13, verse 1. John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved those who were his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Then John 17, a few more chapters over, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. So you see, throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus tapping the brakes every time somebody pushes him to get the ball rolling on the kingdom. And then finally, here in, the, in uh, Gethsemane, or in the area of Gethsemane in John 17, Jesus tells the Father, finally it's time. Not for the kingdom, but for God's plan to get rolling and him to be crucified. Jesus was working on the Father's timetable, not anybody else's. So, turn back to chapter 7, and this brings us to our first principle for application. And it basically is a re, restatement or a paraphrase of Jesus' statement to his brothers. And here's the principle. We want God to act immediately, but his timing sees the big picture. We want God to act immediately, but his timing sees the big picture. You know, I thought about that with relation to my specific prayer that I would not have a busted pipe and I had six. One of the things that that did, as I think about it, is that the the stress uh, with, the, with the temperature revealed the weakness of the pipe. And I was able to get it contained even though it was a huge and expensive hassle. But think about that in relation to our lives as well because when you pray something and God specifically says no and he puts you in a, in a situation where there is a ton of pressure, no, no pun can, intended on that, but uh, it reveals weakness, and it reveals weakness so that you can deal with the weakness because who knows what's coming in the future when that needs to be stronger. God reveals the weakness not to push you down or to shove you down, but in order for you to deal with that weakness because he sees a future that's coming in which that weakness needs to be no longer weak. We want God to act immediately, but his timing sees the big picture. For us, there's no time like the present, but God knows the big picture. And if Jesus' brothers had actually known the big picture, they would not have pushed Jesus to get the kingdom thing rolling. Because what happens to unbelievers, unbelieving Jews, at the beginning of the Messiah's kingdom? It's not good. This is the whole parable of the, of the, the virgins who were waiting for the bridegroom. Remember that? Some were left outside because they weren't ready. 
That's the parable, and that's what would have happened. So it was actually merciful that Jesus waited. It would be another six months before Jesus would actually present himself to Israel as the Messiah. This is the fall of Sukkot, and then Passover would be six more months after that, where he went to Jerusalem for the final time, so that he could die on the cross for his brothers and for all of us. So thankfully, Jesus was willing to, father, to follow the Father's timing and, um, and not anybody else's. Look at what else Jesus said to his brothers, starting in verse 7. He says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So does that make you kind of scratch your head? First he tells his brothers, you're going up, I'm not going, and then he goes. Well, why? Because what he meant was, I'm not going up for the purpose you want me to go up. So you go on, you go on alone. And then Jesus goes up secretly because he doesn't, again, want the pressure of the public, of the, the public kingdom being pushed. Which sort of strikes us strange because as soon as he gets there, he goes to the temple and begins teaching. <laughs> and that's not going to go unnoticed. In fact, he, he begins to lock horns with people over issues of uh, the law and Moses. If you just kind of look down through the rest of this chapter, you see Jesus getting into um, disagreements with people there in the temple. In fact, in verse 30, once again, the timing issue comes up. It says, They were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. So once again, John drives that home. When it's time, it will happen. You know, it sort of like made me think of when Vladimir was sharing about the class. It's waiting, waiting, waiting on the class to happen. And then all of a sudden, boom, it happened, and it happened in rapid succession. That's the way it is. When Jesus says, I'm coming quickly, he doesn't mean like, I'm coming uh, in February, that kind of quickly. What he means is, when I come, I'm coming quickly. There's not going to be any delay once it's time. Once it's time, I am coming, and there will be no delay. So, but his time had not yet come. There was this sense of following God's sovereign plan. So Jesus answers them and tells them, uh, you know, my time is not yet at hand. Your time is always opportune. Jesus goes up to the Feast of Booths and begins to teach. So verse 37, we see a wonderful uh, statement Jesus makes that takes us into sort of a transition, more, much more on the Feast of Booths. Verse 37 says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. You know, it's a beautiful metaphor just by itself, but Jesus meant much more than just our you know, Western interpretation of this. Oh, that's nice. If you're thirsty, Jesus can, you know, help you and you can drink. Well, he meant much more than that because there was, on the last day of the feast, a ritual <clears throat> that occurred 
that uh, everyone would have been familiar with, but probably most of us are not familiar with. And it had to do with uh, a pool there in Jerusalem called the Pool of Siloam. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, on the southern end of the city of David, there is a pool there called the Pool of Siloam. It was sort of the, the, the goal of when Hezekiah dug Hezekiah's tunnel back in when the Assyrians were trying to uh, come south and invade during uh, Hezekiah's time in 701 B.C., Hezekiah realized they were coming, and the refugees were flooding south from the north, and he built a big wall around the western hill of Jerusalem, and he needed to bring water also inside the city because the geography of Jerusalem is such that the primary uh, water source, the Gihon Spring, flowed in a valley outside the city. That is not where you want your water when the enemy's coming. You want your water inside the city. And so he built, he dug the tunnel that went underneath the city of David and then stopped up the water so that it wouldn't run outside the city and would run through the tunnel and it would pool inside the pool of Siloam, which was inside the city and then everyone could have water inside the city. Well, that pool was still there in the time of Christ. It obviously had been fixed up and and uh, it was a lot uh, more modernized by the time of Christ. And for many years, archaeologists, when they found this pool, they thought that it was, there's two pools. There's one, right when you come out of the Hezekiah's Tunnel, there's a small little pool there that's probably not a whole lot bigger than this stage. It's called the Upper Pool. And they thought that was it for a long time. Until in 2004, when some uh, workers were working on a sewer line or a sep- some kind of a, some kind of a, uh, drainage line, they accidentally ran across the real pool of Siloam, which was just a little further south, began to uncover it, and I mean, it's like how many, a couple of hundred feet? I'm trying to think. Yeah, 225 feet long, the whole north side of this thing, and it's square. So the rest of it's buried under private property, ironically, under church property, and, the, and a church won't sell it and let, let the archaeological thing be uh, uncovered. But anyway... Um, But this was the pool in the time of Jesus that this event that we're going to look at actually occurred. Jesus actually refers to the pool of Siloam a couple of times. Uh, John refers to it. We won't turn there, but if we were to turn a couple of chapters further, there is the miracle at the pool of Siloam when when Jesus heals this blind man. Remember, he he spits and he makes mud and he, he puts it in the blind man's eyes and he says, go and wash in Siloam. And so he goes and he washes in the pool of Siloam and he comes back seeing. And uh, interesting, Jesus' disciples ask, who sinned that this man was born blind? Remember he asked that question? Jesus also gave another incident at the pool of Siloam. And I think it's the Gospel of Luke. Luke refers to an incident. Uh, Jesus says there's an incident where 18 men uh, died because the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. You remember that vague reference? Jesus refers to that event and he says, Do you suppose that these men on whom the Tower of Siloam fell are worse culprits than all those who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you not. If you don't repent, worse is going to happen to you. So Jesus, interestingly, uses the Pool of Siloam on two different occasions, once with the blind man he heals there and once with this current event of a tower falling and killing people, basically saying that, Uh, correcting the assumption that the reason tragedy happens is because of sin. That the reason that that this man was born blind was because of sin. 
or that the reason that these people died in this great tragedy was because of sin. Jesus says, no, it's not necessarily because of that at all. And that is a wonderful thing for us to remember in our lives. It's helpful for me to remember when God says no to me, specifically praying about my pipes bursting. It's not because of my sin. Probably. Maybe. Okay, it probably was. But the pool of Siloam was also not referenced here in John 7, but is very much in the mind of everyone who would be reading John 7 who had a Jewish mindset. Because they understood when Jesus on the last and great day of the feast stood and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Because what happened in the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles or booths also required a sacrifice for sin. And on the last and greatest day of the feast, a priest would go down to the pool of Siloam with a golden pitcher and would dip in the water and then would walk up, back up a road that went from the Pool of Siloam all the way to Temple Mount. They have uncovered this road. Sharon, have you and Dennis visited this road? Have you seen this road? Good, that's good. I've been there a few times. Once it's been open and a couple times it's been closed and one time I had to sneak in to get in. But it's, uh, it is open to, for the public you know, here and there, to, to walk in and to walk all the way up. You can walk on this road that goes from the Pool of Siloam all the way up to the Temple Mount. It kind of diverts you into a drainage ditch about halfway through it. But nevertheless, you still get the same, um, same effect of walking up the very steps that would have been there in the time of Christ. A priest would go, would dip in the pool, would take it up to the temple and pour it out at the base of the altar it was also in remembrance of how God had provided water from the rock. There was symbolism that was full in this tradition. But when they would pour it out, they would sing uh, from Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. Just listen to Isaiah 12, verse 3. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And if we were to read all of Isaiah 12 and look at the context, we would see that it is a context of what Israel will do when the Messiah rules in the kingdom. And so everyone would have known this, that when Jesus, on the day in which this ritual occurred, basically says, if anybody is thirsty, come to me. He is making a direct connection between himself and the fulfillment of Isaiah. John doesn't say this because John wouldn't have to say it to anybody reading it in that day. But for us, we need the extra uh, historical background to make that connection. Verse 37, let's read that and continue through the rest of what Jesus says. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Christ was showing that he was the fulfillment of that tradition that pointed to Isaiah chapter 12, and that he still offers that same salvation to anyone who would believe. That's true today. He still offers that salvation to anyone who, who will believe in him. It's a promise that the Spirit will indwell you and that you will have forgiveness of sins through faith in him. 
So our first principle was that we want God to act immediately, but his timing sees the big picture. Here's here's a second principle that we get from Jesus, and that is that the Lord promises us that our waiting will be worth it. The Lord promises us that our waiting will be worth it. Jesus said from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. From your innermost being, you will be so full and satisfied if you come to Christ. Now, we can leave John chapter 7 and actually turn to Isaiah 12. And let's read this, what the people would have been familiar with in Jesus' day, but what we're not that familiar with. But knowing the context in which this would, was pointing to the Messiah ruling in the kingdom, think about the wonderful fulfillment Jesus implied when he said, if you're thirsty, come to me. Look at Isaiah 12. It's just six verses. Let me read this short chapter. Then you will say on that day, so what day is that? That's the kingdom when the Messiah is ruling. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And in that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, For he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. I love that beautiful picture looking forward to the kingdom of God. And this is Jesus' wonderful expectation and promise that we are also going to get participate to participate in. And so that final principle, the Lord promises us our waiting will be worth it. Isaiah 12 is a good thing to read when you are struggling with waiting on the Lord, because this is not just Israel's future, but by the grace of God reaching out to all nations and us, Gentiles, uh, it's also something that we'll get to participate in. We want God to act immediately, but his timing sees the big picture. And the Lord promises us that our waiting will be worth it. Now, when we started, we talked about the fact that Jesus' brothers were unbelievers. But after the resurrection, they trusted in their brother. (laughs) They trusted in their Messiah. But interestingly, when you read the letters, uh, the epistles of James and Jude, you don't see them saying, you know, Jude, brother of Jesus, they're still, they keep it very humble. Both of them do. In fact, James calls himself a servant. But Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to his brother James. It doesn't say that he appeared to any others, but he did appear to James, which is a, a fascinating insight. He appeared to Peter. He made some specific, very specific appearances to people. 
but James was one of them. Some critics say that Jesus never appeared to anybody but believers. That's not true. He appeared to the Apostle Paul, and uh, Paul was converted. He appeared to James. (laughs) James was converted. So Jesus would appear to unbelievers, but uh, they didn't stay unbelievers long. Once you see the resurrected Christ, that pretty well does it for you to believe this is the real deal. Also, Acts chapter 1, it says that uh, there among the early church, Jesus' brothers are included in that group. So his brothers did come to faith. And there's no reason to think that it wouldn't include his sisters as well. Well, let's close in prayer. But before we do, uh, I want to read just a couple of verses from Jesus' baby brother, Jude. Jude wrote this in his epistle. And these uh, verses I'll read are verses 21, 24, and 25. Jude writes, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Isn't that amazing? This is the guy that grew up with Jesus in Nazareth, wrote these words. Wonderful. Let's pray. Father, it's great to be able to go in our mind's eye to that little place in Jerusalem where at the Pool of Siloam, miracles were done. This blind man was able to see, and hearts were opened beyond the blind man, where others also came to faith. Thank you for this, uh, this text today that shows us the conversation Jesus had with his unbelieving brothers, and how easily we can identify with them, wanting to push you to play Frisbee with us when you are dealing with much bigger things. Father, thank you for the wisdom that you operate in our lives, for the times that you say no to specific requests, because you see the bigger picture, and we can trust you rather than blame you or accuse you of not caring, as if we know what's best for our lives. In truth, you know what's best. These brothers didn't get it, but the resurrection proved it true to them, and they were converted. Thank you also for this beautiful picture that Jesus gives us here at the Pool of Siloam of a life that committed to Jesus Christ would have the Spirit of God within that would overflow in abundance. We have yet to see the full realization of that in our lives, but we have seen enough to where we know it's true, that we have a great confidence that Jesus is the Messiah, that he did die on the cross for our sins, that he rose again, and because that is true, we believe it's true that he's coming again and will uh, reign on the earth with us at his side. How grateful we are, Lord, for the chance today to remember these things and to give you the glory and the praise. And with Jude, we, we give this wonderful doxology that through Jesus Christ our Lord, 
May there be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.